Each Sunday in December, uh, Ben and Scott are going to be preaching our Advent series from out of Isaiah. And each Sunday in December, we'll have another family from Cross Point up here to light the Advent candles, uh, an Advent wreath. And um, the kids are asking me on the way here this morning, what is this thing? <laughs> what does it mean? What? And I just simply said it's a, a visual to help us, another visual to help us celebrate the coming of Jesus, the long-awaited king who came not as an earthly king but as a baby. And the light of the candles represents his light, the ultimate light, breaking through the darkness of this world. Um, depending on who you talk to and throughout church history, there's been different meanings assigned to the symbolism of the candles and the wreath. But there's two common threads in lighting an Advent wreath or an Advent candle series, and that is light and anticipation, which is the looking forward of Advent to Jesus coming. And each week, each Lord's Day, each Sunday, the light will get stronger as we light a new candle. And then on Christmas Eve, we will have lit a Christmas Eve service. We will have lit the fourth candle. And then the last Sunday of the month, we will, have, we will light the center candle, the Christ candle. And it will be fully lit, ultimate light that he represents coming into the darkness of this world. This is the Cardwell family. My dad, Mike, he's going to read scripture and pray an Advent prayer for us in just a minute. Uh, this is Christy, my wife, Lily and Hank, Ruby, and my mom, Linda. And so we're going to light the candle, and Dad's going to read our scripture for the morning and then lead us in a prayer. Reading Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass that in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the, Lord, the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall come the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this Advent season, a time to celebrate the birth of your Son and our Savior, and Father, a time to look forward to his glorious return. Thank you for unspeakable joy. Thank you for unspeakable love. Thank you for a time, Father, but I pray that this wouldn't be just for one month out of the year, but that we would praise you for, again, your unspeakable joy throughout every day this year. Thank you again for loving us, and thank you for a time to praise you. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here with us for the first time this morning, we're glad you're here. I want to just uh, invite you with a little notice to uh, look at one of these old visitor cards and see back in front of you. And if you're willing, obviously it's not something that we want to push on you, uh, fill that thing out. Let us get to know you. Let us, um, there's some little things you can indicate on there if you'd like some specific information. Um, we don't, by practice, make a visit to your home at inappropriate times, really at all, unless you want one. If you'd like a visit at inappropriate times, we could do that too. So um, we uh, just want to kind of give you an opportunity to sort of get a, a sense of who we are. And uh, this may be a, 
a nice first step to that. Also, I want to call your attention to a little stack of books that's on the table just outside the door there. Um, we only have, I think, eight or nine of these. Uh, it's called uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Uh, it's edited by Nancy Guthrie. It's a collection of readings over the course of the month, sort of an Advent series of readings from people like Martin Luther, uh, John Piper, um, really some good stuff in here. And uh, some ancient, Tim Keller, some current, Tim Keller's not ancient, um, some current like Tim Keller or John Piper, some, and even Martin Luther's not what I would call ancient, but there are some older uh, dead guys that have some really awesome stuff to think about and consider. So I, I invite you to grab one of these if you'd like to. Uh, you don't, if, if you don't have finances for that, don't fret over that. If you'd like to make a donation, that's totally cool. Um, if not, don't worry about it. We are in the book of Isaiah, as Mike read this morning, and uh, I would like to start, I know Mike started us, let a, a sort of prayed for our Advent month. I would like to pray for this specific morning, how we spend this morning. I want to pray for another local church and um, pray for how we spend these next few minutes. So let's pray. Dear Lord, first of all, I just want to pray, we want to pray for another church that's nearby, um, somewhat in our community in Quinlan. I want to pray for FBC Quinlan. I want to pray for Brad and Cheryl of Favors. Brad is pastoring this church. Lord, I want to pray first and foremost for Brad's worship, that he is being fueled by worship as he's, first of all, uh, being a husband to Cheryl. Second of all, being a parent, and I'm probably a grandparent at this point. And then third of all, being a pastor to your people at Quinlan FBC. Lord, I pray that you would guard his heart from just doing a job. I pray that you would guard his heart from those dry periods of, of throwing in the towel, um, but that he would go the distance, fueled by worship, um, not out of compulsion or duty, but out of joy, leading and shepherding your people at FBC Quinlan. Or two, we pray for the ministry of FBC Quinlan to Quinlan. We just pray for a real connection uh, to folks that don't know you. I pray for a meaningful um, expression of the city on the hill, that FBC Quinlan would be Zion in Quinlan, that it would be the house of the Lord, that it would be a place where the nations can flow to, to hear from you and hear true things about you, to learn your ways. God, I pray, for, pray the same thing for Crosspoint and for every Christian church in our community, that we would be salt and light, that we would be a city on a hill, and that um, you would draw people from every corner through the ministries of these local churches. Or two, I just want to enjoy for a moment, we want to enjoy Gary Carroll sitting here with us in the flesh that we haven't had a funeral a few weeks ago, but then we're enjoying corporate worship together with our brother and his family. You are good and gracious, and we are thankful. God, we turn this time over to you. I pray that you would guide us. I pray for, pray for uh, the Holy Spirit to expose truths to us in a way that I'm not capable of, that we would hear in a way that we're not capable of, that there would be a supernatural encounter with you and your word and your truth and your spirit, and that you would equip us for worship. We turn this time over to you as an offering. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you want to have a sort of a map of where we're going scripturally, this, there are five passages you can jot down. 
Isaiah 2, obviously, it's home base, starting point. Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 1, Matthew 5, and Ephesians 3. I have a burden for brevity, um, not for the sake of brevity, but for learning to say more in less time. And I hope that this morning will be one of those occasions where in just a very condensed, potent uh, time together, we will hear from the Lord. And I'll just confess to you, Isaiah is really intimidating for me. It's not an easy book to preach from. Uh, The real linear Hebrews, as complicated and as deep as it may be, it's linear, and I'm linear, and Isaiah is not so much. So it's going to be really preaching and exposing a series of images, which Scott and I... Scott, Scott said that I should throw in some like high kicks or something between images to really accentuate their importance. It's, I think the Holy Spirit is going to do that for me, I hope, because I might pull a muscle. As Brad shared, we are celebrating Advent this month. Advent is celebrating Christ's first coming and all that it meant and anticipating his second coming. And this month, we'll celebrate in, in, in its entirety from the book of Isaiah. So this morning, I want to give you a little bit of context regarding Isaiah. God spoke to the nation of Israel. Specifically, he spoke to Judah and Jerusalem through the prophet Isaiah around 700 BC. If you want to put a little mark in the timeline, that's a good reference for you. 700 BC. He actually, his ministry was really actually a long ministry that straddled that period from about 740 BC to about 681 B.C. But around 700 B.C., Solomon's temple is still standing in all its glory in Jerusalem. The sacrifices are still being made. The northern kingdom is headed toward exile as Isaiah is beginning his ministry in 740 B.C. But the southern kingdom, Jerusalem and Judah, Judah specifically, is, is not in exile. They're experiencing some pressure from Assyria, But for the most part, things are going pretty well with the temple standing, sacrifices still going on. But the problem is the people truly didn't delight in the law of the Lord. They didn't delight in the Lord and what he's done for Israel and who he was and is. They were a wicked people, clean on the outside but dark on the inside like whitewashed tombs. A couple of reference passages to just give you a little glimpse into what was going on here in the book of Isaiah, 700-something B.C. Just the chapter before, it says in verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. This is a book about sinners. Isaiah is a book about a bunch of sinful people. He goes further in that same chapter in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Oh, now, that's pretty low. He's talking about Jerusalem. Calling Jerusalem Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Things must have been really dark and really bad. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Apparently, it was a very dark time where the people still were sacrificing, trampling the courts. They're still showing up with many sacrifices, many offerings, many prayers, 
but their hearts were far from him. He says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. This is a a time of hypocrisy in the nation of Israel, Judah specifically. A very, very dark period. Yet this first chapter gives the rest of the story for the book of Isaiah. In the first chapter, if you want to look at verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, you dark, wicked Sodom and Gomorrah, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That's the good news of this book of Isaiah. You're a sinful people, but there's good news coming because the Messiah is going to make it right. What a wonderful, wonderful message. Though your sins are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's a great message with a a great book with a great message and a great outcome. The book of Isaiah is a book of visions. A book of visions that are hope for sinners in the person and work of the Messiah. What an appropriate place for us to spend this month. I'm going to read again verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read them in their entirety, and then we're going to disassemble them in four parts, really. And I'll share with you those parts. I want to read the passage as a whole, joining in with Mike yet again with another, um, another go with this passage. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. I want to equate you with some moving parts here in this passage, just so you kind of have a sense of where we're going, big picture. The first four verses are prophetic in nature. They're pointing towards something that hasn't happened yet, that he's assuring will happen. And verse 5 is then a charge. The first four are prophetic. Verse 5 is a charge to the nation of Israel. These vision and images, are many of them are figurative in this passage. And really through the book of Isaiah, many of the images throughout the book are pointing towards something that at the moment that they were shared, 700-something B.C., they likely were pretty blurry. But they came into focus over time and came into focus especially in the birth and the ministry of Jesus and the cross and resurrection. Some words that are used interchangeably in these four, excuse me, five verses that's important. That I wouldn't call them synonyms because it depends on where you're reading them. But at least in this passage, they're used interchangeably. Those words, Jerusalem, mountain of the house of the Lord, house of the God of Jacob, Zion, and house of Jacob. Those are used interchangeably. If you don't consider them the same, different ways of expressing the same thing, then it's going to be confusing for you. Jerusalem, the mountain of the house of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, Zion, 
and the house of Jacob. That may seem just sort of nifty for you for the moment, but you're going to find out as the sermon continues that this has absolute relevance for what we're doing and who we are right now. Those five things used interchangeably. There's four things going on in this passage, and these are going to, this is going to be our guide for the morning. And you're going to see some images that come out of these four things. First of all, a hill made a mountain. It's part one of the message. A hill that's made a mountain. The second thing, a river made of people. A river made of people. The third thing is weapons repurposed for gardening. Weapons repurposed for gardening. And the fourth thing will be the charge for God's people. These images we're going to consider in these next few minutes, they build upon one another and end with a charge for Israel and a charge for us. Let's consider first the hill made a mountain, beginning in verse 1 and most of verse 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Here in the 8th century, Isaiah is prophesying about something that will come to pass. It hasn't happened as of this moment, and that's why he says it shall be established. Here in 700-something B.C., this hasn't happened yet. It didn't happen in 2,000 years B.C. with Abraham. It didn't happen with Moses, 1,500 years B.C. It didn't happen with King David, 1,000 years B.C. And it hadn't happened at this point, 700-something years B.C., But he says something is coming and something is going to happen in the latter days. And I have something that's some good news for you that's going to make things especially appropriate for us this morning. We are in those latter days. What he's talking about is something that is happening now. Turn to Acts chapter 2. We are in the latter days. Acts chapter 2, this is the preaching at Pentecost. Peter is our preacher here. The chicken of the Passover, now seven weeks later, is the bold preacher of Pentecost. We're going to read from Acts chapter 2 twice this morning. This is the first time from one little section, and later we'll come back to Acts chapter 2. But what I want you to see here on what is being preached on the birthday of the church, this is a hint for where we're going this morning. What's being preached on the birthday of the church here in chapter 2, verse 16. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. What he's, he's sharing this passage here at Pentecost in this sermon because he's saying those days are now. These latter days that Isaiah talked about, these latter days that Joel talks about, these last days, they start today is essentially what he's saying. With Christ's work, his birth work, his cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and now the Holy Spirit coming, the birthday of the church These latter days begin now. So we're smack dab in them. We're 2,000 years in the latter days. 1 John 2.18 says that it's the last hour. 
What we fail to realize sometimes, and I think what our lives fail to reflect, is realizing that we're in the very last chapter of the story of redemption. The next thing that happens is his return, and the story's over. We go to be with him, or he comes here in a new heavens and new earth. We are in the last days. People that have this sort of end-time sensational stuff, and I saw a billboard coming back from Austin that put another date up as this is the next date to look for him. You know, that's sort of ridiculous, but at least the attitude, the disposition should be characteristic of God's people where we realize we are living in the last days. We are living in the last chapter. We may not think that this is going to happen in our lifetimes, but it may happen in the little kid's lifetime that's sitting next to you or in their kid's lifetime. We are in the last days. Every time you read a reference to the latter days and last days in the Old Testament, realize you're living in them. Make it personal. You're living in them. We're living in them. Now, what's going on with this mountain? That first image of the latter days, realizing we're now, are now, let's consider the mountain. What's the deal with this mountain business here? The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Notice that it's future tense. It hadn't happened as of 700 years B.C. that this mountain was lifted up. He's talking about something that shall be established at some point in the future. Now, let me just give you a little bit of insight into Jerusalem. Brad Cardwell and I and some other guys had the opportunity to go to Jerusalem years back. Jerusalem was under-impressive for me. I've read about it my whole life, and I got there, and now it's cool. That wall is amazing, and it's ancient. You're walking around the oldest stuff I've ever seen in my life. But it's under-impressive. The Kidron Valley, you know, you can walk across it in about 15, 20 minutes. The Mount of Olives, it's steep. But you can walk to the top of Mount of Olives in about another 15 or 20 minutes. The Temple Mount is just like a big parking lot. Now, it's not a parking lot. There's no cars parked up there. But I'm just talking, it looks like a big parking lot that's empty, except for a big mosque sitting right in the middle of it. It's under-impressive when you get there. And you realize, man, when you hear words that are used for Jerusalem like mountain, you go, wait a minute. (laughs) It's a hill. Let's be really honest, it's a hill. Where the Temple Mount sits, it's about 2,500 feet above sea level. Now, that would be a mountain if the surrounding area was lower by about 1,000 feet. That's what National Geographic calls a mountain, something that protrudes above the surrounding area by at least 1,000 feet. Well, the Mount of Olives is taller than the the Temple Mount. The Mount of Olives is about 2,700 feet. And the surrounding area, there's little valleys and stuff like that, but it's not a mountain geographically, if we're going to talk geography. It's not a mountain, it's a hill. Now, it's a cool hill, but in all actuality, we should call it the Temple Hill or the Hill of Olives. Try that with people, your friends and family. What are you talking about? It's a hill. Now, let's talk about in terms of importance. Maybe he's saying that in terms of importance, this mountain or hill will be made a mountain. Well, Jerusalem then at that time wasn't very high in terms of importance in 700 B.C. There was the Capitoline Hill in Rome. Rome has seven hills that later became, at this point, this is the early stages of the Roman Empire, sort of the fledgling um, labor pain period before the Roman Empire was born. But the Capitoline Hill was not geographically really high, but in terms of importance, it later became the Citadel. For the Roman Empire. Now we could call that hill pretty high in importance. There are other hills like Mount Olympus. The highest mountain in Greece rises to over 10,000 feet, a prominent place geographically and symbolically 
in terms of Greek mythology and the Greek religion. There are other mountains. The Buddhists have their mountain. It's about 15,000 feet. The, the Assyrians had their mountain. It's about 5,600 feet. But Jerusalem, though, paled in comparison geographically and politically to all these other places. It wasn't an empire. There's nothing impressive about Israel, and yet we're reading about it in this moment that he's saying it's going to be elevated to the point of being the highest mountain anywhere. Compared to some of these mountains we're mentioning, it would have been quite unimpressive. So something so profound will happen, Isaiah prophesies, that it will elevate this mountain to the most important of any mountain worldwide. Something so profound that it will raise this mountain in importance above all other mounts. As I read about this and I thought about this dynamic where this hill really, if we're going to be honest, is considered a mountain, it just sounded kind of familiar. If, you're, if you would, just kind of have this ready. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. <clears throat> this little hill that's counted a mountain just sounded so familiar. An unimpressive hill counted a most important mountain. Just sounded familiar. A mount, and I put air quotes around it, that in the eyes of the world isn't very high at all, sounds a lot like a savior of the world that's born in Bethlehem. It just sounded familiar. It sounds like a king who washes feet and ironically washes the feet of tax collectors and fishermen. A hill that he's going to call a mountain, a hill that the world would look at and say, unimpressive, that he says is most important, just sounded really familiar. It sounded like a king that rides a donkey's colt. The world might laugh and mock, but yet the king of the world is riding it. It sounds like a kingdom where the first is last and the last is first. It sounds like a contrary kingdom to call that little hill a mount and the most important mount of any mount. It sounded like 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to me. Listen to this passage. It's fitting. For the word of the Lord is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a wee hill, stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, it's Everest. Man, isn't it? It's Everest. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, church. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. You weren't Olympus. You weren't a towering peak standing above all other peaks. Not many were powerful. Not were many, many were of noble birth. But God chose a hill. He chose what's foolish in the world to, change, to, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low 
and despised in the world, even things that are not like a wee hill, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Man, that just sounded familiar. This passage here, and this is going to transition us for the morning, is about the church. As I considered this little hill that really, if we're going to be honest, is just a hill that God says is going to be the highest of all hills I thought this also sounds like a simple gathering in relationship, meaningful relationship of some ordinary people that gather weekly and sing some songs to each other and to emptiness as far as the world's concerned. And then listen to a speech, sometimes a long speech. (laughs) What a waste of time in the eyes of the world. What a hill, what a wee hill, but what an Everest for those who are being saved. The world might look at this and say, that's not very important. It's certainly not necessary, and it's honestly a waste of time. But we know otherwise. It is the salvation of God's people. In the eyes of the world, the church may be the most insignificant of hills, but through the lens of God's word, it's an Everest. And here's why it's fitting that I mention the church. Because these two images so far, the latter days... And the mountain of the Lord, the elevated mountain of the Lord, those two things come together and are only made sense when we have the church in view. See, the mountain and house of the Lord that's being referred to here, that's being prophesied about, isn't Jerusalem. I'm talking isn't physical Jerusalem right now. Nothing has happened in the last 2,700 years since this passage was prophesied. To elevate Jerusalem to be what is exposed in these later verses. In fact, if you're looking at this passage through the lens of what Jerusalem is now, you're going to be very confused. These things don't make sense if you're thinking about Jerusalem. We'll consider some of those things as we go on this morning. We couldn't say about Jerusalem what this passage says because this passage isn't talking about Jerusalem. It's talking about the church. We are the city on the hill. I told you it's going to be oh so relevant. Turn to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. What beautiful imagery and symbolism is taking place in this passage. What what a beautiful reality. Matthew chapter 5, if you're familiar with your Gospels, you know Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. It's a Sermon on the Mount. We don't know what mount. It's one of the mounts around Jerusalem. It may have been a hill or a mountain near what, what they would call a mountain, what we would call a hill next to the Sea of Galilee. But here, God the Son preaches. And here's what God the Son says. Verse 1 tells us that he's speaking to his disciples. Now, we know there's a crowd gathered around, but he's speaking to his followers And here's what he says to his followers in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Please see the connection there. You are the city on the hill, followers of Jesus. Ironically, he's standing on Zion telling the people of God what would actually be. What is now, as of his showing up, the new Zion. The people of God are the new Zion. You're the city on the hill. Nor do people put a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. 
In the same way, you people of God, you disciples of Christ, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here he preaches from the mount. And it's so beautiful that he stands where Zion was while he teaches them where Zion will be. Man, what a beauty. The people of God are to be Zion to the world. The church is the new Jerusalem. The church is the mountain of the Lord. The church is the house of the God of Jacob. The church is Zion. If you think in Jerusalem, you'll be scratching your head. If you think in the church, the rest of this passage is going to make a lot of sense. Some things that I enjoy, if you have the church in view as you're reading this passage, two things before we consider a river made of people. First of all, I enjoy that he calls it a mountain because church doesn't always feel like a mountain to me. In fact, it feels fragile. It feels like sometimes I enter the pulpit with so much pressure thinking what I want to say but how it may hit God's people and that we may lose people. You think that hadn't happened in 11 years? This happens so many times that sometimes I approach with the wrong kind of trepidation. Not that I will not represent God, but how will God's people respond? Or how will some of God's people respond? It doesn't feel like a mountain to me at times. It feels fragile. And the ebb and the flow and the life of church just makes it feel precarious. The first few years of a church plant, we didn't hardly sleep, Christy and I. Man, it didn't feel like a mountain, but he calls it a mountain. It's unmovable. I needed to hear that. I need to enjoy that. The church, apparently the gates of hell can't prevail against it. It's a mountain. Man, and something else that I really enjoy is that as the latter times march forward, the importance and the elevation of this mount will only increase. They will only increase as we move toward there being no church. There'll be just a worldwide people of God. And the king will live with his people in a new heavens and new earth. Man, I enjoy that concept of this thing marching toward absolute consummation. With the elevation of this mount. I was thinking about after the flood... Noah and his family are on the ark, and there's just flood. There's just judgment everywhere. Maybe dead bodies at this point. I don't know what he's seeing over the course of their time floating around. But then the mountains of Ararat almost emerge, and that's where God's people land on the mountains of Ararat. And I'm seeing the church landing, sitting prominently on the mountains of Ararat as a hill is made a mountain. Secondly, the second image going on in this passage is a river made of people. Beginning in the last little section of verse 2. And the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Notice what's going on here. It's images of nations, not water. Nations flowing. Nations flowing, and that's going to happen in the latter days. It began with Christ's work. If you want to get real specific, it began apparently at Pentecost. The nations here are likened to rivers flowing beautifully upwards. 
What a beautiful picture of this unnatural work of salvation, that it's not like anything else we've ever seen or experienced in all of creation. Do you know many things that flow upwards? I don't. Some of you engineers may know of a few things. I know of nothing that flows upward except for God's people flowing to the mount of the Lord because it is a un, isn't it? unnatural work, salvation. It's a supernatural work if we wanted to be very specific. The thing that I enjoy in this image of these people's flowing upward to the mountain of the Lord, it's like a reversal of Babel. You know, the story in Babel is that Babel, they wanted to make a great name for themselves, and they are dispersed. But here, the people of God are making and enjoying, really, a great name of God, and instead, it's the undispersion, where from the far corners, these people that have been dispersed are now being gathered up. In place of the city of confusion stands the city of peace. And many peoples will flow to the mountain of the Lord to learn his ways. This is clearly not Jerusalem right now. Clearly, we're not talking about some physical reality going on in Jerusalem. One of the things I will tell you about Jerusalem, it is indeed a melting pot of the nations. Man, I couldn't believe the different people and the different clothing and the different religious stuff that was going on, all different kind of sects, even within religions. It was a melting pot. It's indeed a melting pot of religion, especially Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The nations do indeed flow to it, but not for one religion, from the one true God teaching the one true way, but for many religions. We're not speaking about Jerusalem here. We're definitely not speaking of the Temple Mount, where, as I mentioned earlier, right smack dab in the Temple Mount is a mosque. It'll break your heart when you come up come up those stairs. I can't remember how you walk up those stairs. You walk up these stairs up under the Temple Mount, which must have had the most beautiful temple you could ever possibly imagine, and it's just like a big parking lot with a mosque sitting right in the middle of it. We're not talking about Jerusalem here. We're talking about the church. Turn to Acts, back to Acts chapter 2. I told you this is the birthday of the church. And look what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now watch what happens in these next few moments. The faucet is turned on. The, the flow begins. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And as the sound of the multitude came together, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own, own tongue. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that, they, that we hear each one, of in, each one of us in his own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans even, there's hope for the Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of the Lord. And this is when the faucet was turned on and the flow began uphill. Man, from every corner, they regathered up the unbabble, the undispersion. Man, something profound has in fact happened. The Messiah has come. And a river of people is flowing up. And he's talking about the church. 
That's where they're going. They're going to God's people. And the flow still flows from the darkest corners and darkest recesses. What a beautiful, beautiful image. Something else that's really sweet and enjoyable about this passage is this picture of what's going on with these people. What's in the flow? What do these people look like that are flowing upward toward God? Well, first of all, they're hungry for the teaching of the Lord. They're not coming to get their bills paid. They're not coming to get stroked. They're not coming to be made feel better about themselves. They're not coming to get a bunch of stuff done for them. They're coming specifically, it says here, for the teaching of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. You want to know what genuine believers look like? Let's look at the flow. First of all, we see that they demonstrate an earnest desire to be instructed in the ways of the Lord. Man, that's affirming for me. That's affirming for me. That's what real believers look like. It makes a lot of sense, too, that his ways are not our way, our, our ways, naturally. We have to be taught in them. We have to learn them. And we have to unlearn our own. And that little installment, for me, needs to happen every single week. Because I learn my old ways back between Sundays. But genuine believers, man, they're gathering to be taught. And something else that's beautiful about these genuine believers, the second thing is they are vocal about their enjoyment. Look at what's taking place in this passage. Many people shall come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. It looks like genuine believers are recruiting all the time. You want an impetus right there for evangelism. What does it look like? Is I'm going to enjoy my Jesus. And I want you to come with me. I want you to come taste and see. You want to know what genuine belief looks like? It looks like people that are hungry to be taught and people that are vocal about how great the Lord is. Come taste and see that, the, that God is good. John Calvin. Share a quote from John Calvin. People ironically consider this Calvin's, Calvinist to be quite unevangelistic. Listen to what he says. And indeed, nothing could be more inconsistent with the nature of faith than that deadness which would lead a man to disregard his brethren and keep the light of the knowledge choked up within his own breast. Man, true believers are hungry to be taught, and true believers are saying, hey, man, come go with me. Come taste and see. That flow is flowing at this point, and it's beautiful. A hill has been made a mountain. And there's a river made of people. The third thing that's going on in this passage is that weapons are modified for gardening. They're repurposed for gardening and they're repurposed permanently. In verse 4, it says, He shall judge between the nations, shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war Anymore. What he's talking about right here is real, profound peace between the peoples who are gathering at the mountain of the Lord. It's again proof that that's what not, not going on in Jerusalem. You, it takes five minutes on Google. Google terrorism in Jerusalem. And you'll see, we're not talking about physical Jerusalem here. He's not prophesying about physical Jerusalem. He's talking about something else. Jerusalem has a history of war and fighting like no other place. 
November 18th was the most recent one. Five dead in Jerusalem synagogue attack. He's not talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about something else. He's talking about the church. And what he's talking about here is such a profound change that the implements of war are converted permanently into gardening tools. Gardening. They're not unloaded and put on display. They are turned permanently into gardening tools. Is anyone more peaceful than the gardener? I love it. We've been talking about gardening for ages. Now here we see a beautiful picture of it. We're turned into gardeners. That's what we are, is a gathering of gardeners. That's what the church is. And this change is so profound. It would be, you've been watching the news likely and seeing what's going on in Ferguson. It would be turning Ferguson into Eden. Not into a conflictless place, but I'm talking Eden. That's how profound this change is. And that's why we know that he's not talking about something that's even happened yet, at least in physical terms. We don't know of any place that has been converted into Eden other than, ideally, the church, where there's no fighting and there's no war. This peace accomplished through Christ's work is so profound, there's a whole book dedicated to it in our Bible, the book of Ephesians. Turn there. It's one of the last passages I'm going to have you turn to this morning, but it's beautiful. It's fitting. The book of Ephesians has so much, we've considered it in terms of marriage and things like that recently, but one of the central themes to the book of Ephesians is the the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile has been destroyed through something so profound that it would take enemies and make them friends. Has happened, and that's happened in the person and work of Jesus. Look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. That's not where I'm wanting to read. I'm wanting to read over here in verse 11. Why don't I have 14? Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise. Let's just call them enemies. Remember, you Gentiles, you were enemies. Lots of conflict. In fact, the word he used later is hostility. You had no hope in the world without God in the world. Excuse me. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might make himself or that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace you see what the instrument for uniting and making real peace is it's the work of Christ and see where he goes next Let's read, let's continue reading for a few more verses. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That sounds like weapons that have been turned into garden implements. It doesn't sound like even unloaded weapons. It sounds like completely converted weapons, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household 
of God. You remember how the sermon began? We are the mountain of the Lord. We are the house of Jacob. That's where he goes. You are now, you former enemies, are now the house of the God of Jacob, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Together these former enemies are being built into the house of the God of Jacob in an unlikely peace between Jew and Gentile. This gives me hope for a man and a woman that are having war between one another in marriage. If God through the work of Christ can reconcile a Jew and a Gentile, he can reconcile a man and a woman any man and woman. This gives me hope for the church. What a beautiful picture that should be going on in the church where people see these people who are former enemies now made friends. These Hatfields and McCoy stories that are reconciled and redeemed in the church. Man, this is the only true peace. Regenerative peace through the regenerating work of Christ thing that's sweet here is that there will be an eventually there will be a time when there will be no more war and no more death and between now and then the church is the taste of that a place of peace a place of life and what fuels this unimaginable peace is the peacemaking work of God through Christ where his enemies are made friends it's so profound it fuels peace between the craziest of enemies And that becomes a gathering of gardeners called the church. Now there's a charge for God's people. It's where we're going to end our morning is their verse 5. Their charge has relevance for us. Their verse 5, O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. For them, what they're being called to walk in is something that hadn't happened yet. It's something that's going to be happening eventually. They don't know how far, how 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 much later it's going to happen. We know the rest of the story, that it's some 700 years later that these latter days began. They're being called to walk in what's in store, to live as if it's coming is what he's calling them to. He's calling them to repentance, repent of your sin, and walk together in a promise of something that's going to happen. The beauty for us is we're being called to walk in the light of the Lord as it's already been realized. We're being called to walk in the light of the Lord, not in some future promise, but in a promise that has already happened for us 2,000 years ago. We're in those latter days right now. We are Zion. We are this mountain that he promised would be elevated to the highest of all mountains. Now, it may not seem like that to the world, but we know better. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. We are the house of Jacob. We are the mountain of the Lord. We are the city on a hill. We are where people go to be taught God's ways and his paths. We are the mountain of the Lord. We are where the river made of people is going. What a wonderful reality. So we are too then, in light of this passage, to call and persuade others to come and taste and see. We do what river folk do. We call to our brethren, and we call to our neighbor, and we call to our family members, and we call to our friends that aren't in the flow. We say, come and taste and see. 
We say, come and taste and see. Specifically, come hear his teaching. Your bills might get paid because you're going to be around a benevolent people that care about what your needs are. But ultimately, you're going to come and hear his teaching. What a beautiful picture of the church. And the church should be a place, too, where we work at peace in light of this passage, where our spears are, in fact, hammered out into plowshares and pruning hooks. We should be a people who strive at peace. Unfortunately, if you've been around church for a period of time, you know that there's sort of a discomfort with that topic because churches are notorious for conflict. But they're not supposed to be. They don't have to be. They're not enslaved to that. A church can, in fact, be a place that strives at peace, according to Hebrews. It says strive at peace, suggesting it's work. Maybe that's the first step in knowing that it takes work to be peaceful with each other. Glad-handing each other and faking at peace is not peace. It's not making peace. There's some beautiful things we can walk away with from this passage. The church should be and do. I think it's a fitting place to begin our month in Advent that we can enjoy a hill that's made a mountain and that we are that hill. We can enjoy that God has turned on the faucet of a river made of people flowing upward to that mountain. And we can enjoy together that in that flow, those people, their weapons are repurposed for gardening. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for the work of the Messiah. Everything that we've talked about this morning could not have been achieved by any other means. Could not have been legislated. Could not even have been taught. It could not have been um, fabricated or planned by any human scheme. It took something unnatural, and we are so thankful that that unnatural work and that unnatural event was God taking on flesh in the person of Christ. God, we are so thankful for the work of the Messiah. I pray that the reality of our our living smack dab in the latter days will be something that grips us and something that fuels this month of some really potent Christ-centered worship, enjoying what's truly been achieved. God, we are so thankful We love you so much, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements. While we were passing out the elements, I was looking around the room and looking at some former enemies made friends. Um, And I'm not talking about like between families. I don't know any Hatfield McCoys in here, but I'm talking like even husbands and wives have been crossways with each other. Um, Man, that's my... It's my best friend right there. And that's the work of the Lord. Man, I've been real open and honest about the kind of stuff that Christy and I have gone through. I've been a very difficult man to live with. But I'm thankful for a God that makes enemies friends of the unlike, most unlikely of folks. I'm thankful that that's what he's done and that's what the church should be. A bunch of gardeners doing some gardening and weapons. As we enjoy the supper together, some things I want you to consider and think on and meditate on and pray on as we take the supper. Enjoy what the Messiah has accomplished. He did what no one else could do. He made a hill a mountain 
and the church is that mountain. Eventually, it will be the world, the new heavens and new earth. Between now and then, we're the taste. We're the place where they go to hear from the teaching of the Lord. He turned on the faucet of a river made of people flowing upward to Zion. Thankful for that faucet. Thankful for that flow. Thankful for those who are in that work or have been in that work who may be going back to that work. What a privilege we have to be part of that work. And he accomplished real peace between man and God first. And then as an outflow of that between Jew and Gentile and between the most difficult of conflicts. I'm thankful. Let's take and eat. And let's take and drink and join that. I've got the opportunity this morning to share a little bit about Lottie Moon. And frankly, my thoughts on Lottie Moon are in this sermon. We have a chance as a people to be part of the flow. To be part of the, the water pressure. People pressure, if we want to use the, the uh, people in the river. The people as the river imagery. I realize, man, this is a weird, it's the worst time of year to put something like this in front of folks because they're like, I got needs, man. Our family's going to be doing this or that or, you know, we're tight and um, we have Christmas plans in store. Um, I understand that, but I want you to consider and pray seriously about what your family can do to be part of this flow because that's what you are when you're giving toward Lottie Moon. You're funding people that are in it, that are out in the far corners preaching that are being Zion in Kazakhstan, or Germany, or potentially Mexico again someday. That's a cool thing to be part of that. I want to put that opportunity in front of you this morning. If you want someone to ask me, even just for a housekeeping question, how do we make the checkout? Do we make it out to Crosspoint? Do we make it out to Lottie Moon? Lottie's dead, so don't make it out to her. She probably doesn't even have a bank account. She might, but I don't know. Probably not. Make it out to Crosspoint Fellowship and then in the little subject line put Lottie Moon so we'll know specifically that's what you're designating it for. And we'll put that to good use and send that to our cooperative program folks so we can be part of the flow. God, we are so thankful. Uh, we treasure what you've shown us in this last little while, these last few minutes. Um, we treasure your word that something that's written 2,700 years ago could be so relevant that could impact every single one of us as we celebrate enemies made friends, as we hold out hope maybe for people that are still enemies that could be made friends eventually in time, in your time. Uh, God, we uh, are just thankful for these images that we've had the chance to enjoy this morning. I pray that they will fuel um, our week and even our month. Just get us focused on what this next month is really about, enjoying our Savior. He is great, you are great, and we are blessed. We love you so much, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great week.